can uh, come and make uh, an amends for what I said last week. It, the, the passage is in James chapter 3, verse 1. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that you who teach will be judged more strictly. And so last week in uh, the opening of my sermon, uh, by mistake, but I want to correct what I said, I said that Jesus came as a sinful man. Uh, I meant to say that Jesus came as a sinless man. So let me make uh, amends to you and a correction. Jesus never came as a sinful man. He came as a sinless man. So I want to, if you heard me say that and left pondering and wondering, uh, I, I made a mistake. And so I apologize uh, to you for that. Uh, that. That's the gift of Jenny. I, you know, I'm in mid-thought and uh, thinking through and Sometimes things come out the way you didn't expect them to come out. And I was like, no, surely I did not say that. And she said, no, you did, I promise. And I went back and listened. I was like, oh, I got to go back next Sunday and tell the congregation he is a sinless less man, not a sinful man. That's how Jesus came to us. So now let's give our attention to this passage of Scripture here in Luke chapter 2, a very familiar uh, passage, uh, one that's read most every Christmas time. And I, I want to look at, something this morning. You know, we've been journeying these last three weeks. This is our fourth and final week uh, through the incarnation that Jesus came as God and as human. Remember, our definition of the incarnation has been this. God, the son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, took on human nature without subtracting from himself any of his divine attributes. So God and his goodness to us, sent his son to us, who is also God. He was both fully man and fully God. And we're here celebrating Advent. Remember our definition for Advent. It uh, comes from the Latin word Adventus. It means arrival or coming. And so at this Advent season, it's a time of our patient, patiently waiting and hoping with expectation, soul searching, calendar watching, as we wait for the arrival of our coming Jesus, our Savior, again. And so this season, I hope it's been provoking in your hearts and minds a, a reminder that Christ came, but more importantly, that Christ will return. We've looked at how Christ and his coming for us has been our love. That God is love. We've looked at how Christ is our peace. And we looked at last week how Christ is our hope. This morning, I want to look at joy. You know, those are the four things, the four pillars that most uh, believers, most Christians hold to at Advent, those four ideas. And, and this morning we will wrap up as we will then come celebrate on Christmas Eve the, the arrival of all four of those, a combination of those together. But this morning we will look at joy. And so I want to give you the world's definition of joy the same way I did last week of hope, but then I want to give a biblical definition, the one that we will look at this morning. This is what Webster says that a joy looks like or how we would define joy. It is a feeling of great, great pleasure or happiness. That's how Webster would define it. Here's how I'd like to define it. This comes from uh, Dr. John Piper, his definition. and I, I believe it's a great biblical definition for joy. He says it's a feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit. As he, the Holy Spirit, causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. So the world is going to tell us that our joy is going to be based on our circumstances. 
that we'll find our joy in what's going on around us. And so many people this last year, if we were honest with ourselves, this has not been a very joyful year or a year full of joy. Whether that's the coronavirus, whether that's your marriage, whether that's your job, whether that's your finances, the list could go on. But many of us have had many conversations of people that have not had joy. Just turn on the news. This has been a year of total unrest. Because we are putting our joy in our circumstances rather than our joy in Christ. And I want to look at that this morning. I want to look at how do we get our joy in Christ. Because if we have our joy in Christ, then when our circumstances implode or explode, our joy does not wane from those things. We can have joy. Because our joy is not in what's around us, but it's in who we place our hope and faith in this morning. So I want to look at Three things this morning. I want to look at joy is not circumstantial. I want to look at joy conquers fear. And finally, I want to look at joy is the Christ. So joy conquers fear. It's never good to have technology and hold it upside down and then the button's trying to uh, tell Siri to dictate this whole thing. That could be a disaster. Uh, so let me flip this upside down so I don't run into that problem and it's a distraction for the rest of uh, the service. There we go. Who would have ever thought you'd twirl a machine up on a, the, the pulpit to do your notes? Uh, thank God for technology, but it can be a disastrous thing at times. Let's go to the text. We're going to look first at how joy is not circumstantial. Again, we read, and we'll read again, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And so we're going to look first at Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, it was said about Caesar that when he came into power, he came into power in Rome, and Rome was the known power of the world. That the Roman Empire was extending its powers all over the known world. And so it says this, one of the, Historian says this about this Caesar, that when he came into power, Rome was made of bricks. But when he died, Rome was made of marble. So we see the power of this man, that this wicked, wicked man wanted to gain all the power. And so it says that he made a decree, he made a law that went out to all the known world that there should be a registration. Well, what was the registration for? Taxation. So Caesar wanted to tax the people of all the world to gain money for themselves. So the way he decided to tax the people was to send them back to their homeland or back to where they came from. That's why Mary and Joseph end up going to Bethlehem because Caesar wanted them to be registered so that they would pay taxes. So those taxes would go back to him so that he would grow in his power. Let's not just say, oh, this is cute that they had to be registered. No, they were under extreme persecution. This is the persecution that was forcing them to make this journey. And so here's this wicked man that's abusing his power for money, for prestige, 
and to tax all that were around him. The next two that we see are Joseph and Mary, and here's their circumstances. Remember that nine months earlier, the angel of the Lord appeared to both Mary and to Joseph and said to both of them, your wife, you, Mary, will be with child, and it's going to be a miraculous conception. Now, this has only happened one time in the world, in all of history, that a woman was a virgin and got pregnant. Now, if one of you ladies decided to do that and post that on Facebook, that would not go so well. We would check you into Vanderbilt Psych Ward. So you, when we come to the story, we got to read the story that when it was first written. These people would have been under great persecution, not just from Caesar, but now from their community. Like, could you imagine every time that Mary or Joseph went out in public, the snickers, the pointing, the, the, the words. I wonder if their community began to shrink around them. I don't know about you, but you don't want to be around crazy people too long. And so that's for nine months. The only person that could identify with her was her, her cousin, Elizabeth. Remember, because Elizabeth was told by God that Mary would be with child. And so she, she was the only one that we know of in the text outside of Joseph that believed what the Lord had told her. And so here we are nine months later, near the end of her pregnancy, as we'll come to find out in just a few short verses. And they're told by the, the Caesar, hey, now you've got to take this journey to Bethlehem to be taxed. Now, we read the text and we think, oh, that's cute. They took a little donkey. They got on a donkey and they went uptown. Now, this was a 70-mile journey. A 70-mile journey for them would have been four to five days. Now, I've been with Jenny twice during her pregnancy. And that last month is not a very pleasant time. Not because of her, but because of all that she's going through. Like, it, it's not like she was dying. She didn't, like, love to get out and about. She didn't love to go to the store. She didn't love to go shopping. Like, the thing that Jenny wanted to do in that last four weeks was just stay home and rest. Am I correct, ladies? Now, could you imagine this girl, she would have been between 12 and 14, that her husband-to-be comes and says, hey, Mary, we got to take a journey five days on foot to Bethlehem to be registered. Like you talk about circumstances. Like Mary, if she had a found her joy in her circumstances, she would have been pretty put out. And so they make this five five day journey, seventy miles. They finally get to the place that they're going, it says. They finally arrive in Bethlehem. And it says when they arrived, there was no room for them in the inn. I, I think the innkeeper gets a bad rap in the story. It's not the innkeeper's fault that there was no room in the inn. The, the fault was Caesar's. So you would have to think, all these people are coming to be registered. So everyone from the lineage of David 
which would have been a lot, would have come to the same city to be registered. So what? They had to find a place to rest as well. It wasn't like the innkeeper was saying, no, there's no room here for you because we just don't like you. He was so overwhelmed that there was no room for Mary and Joseph. We can see the heart of the innkeeper. The innkeeper at least gave him what he had left. So the innkeeper, he he doesn't need to get the bad rap. He simply had no place to put them. So now here's Mary and Joseph, nine months pregnant, lonely, no friends, 70 miles from home, 70 miles from comfort. And then she goes into labor. And she doesn't just go into labor in a hospital. She goes into labor in a barn. Not just any old barn like we have. Most of their barns, most of their stables would have been a cave. Just a dark, cold cave. And so here's Mary and Joseph making their way into this cave, making arrangements for rest, for sleep from their five-day journey, and she is now pregnant and gives birth to Jesus. Now, if that lady and that man had to put all their joy in their circumstance, they would have been pretty joyless. Our joy cannot be found in our circumstances this morning. And so I don't know what it is that you're going through this morning. I don't know where it is that you've placed your joy this morning. My my prayer is you have not placed your joy in our circumstances. Even this morning as I was in the deacons meeting and hearing about we've got to, for precautionary measures, not meet again for two weeks. That does not bring me joy as a pastor. That does not bring me delight. That does not bring me excitement. That does not bring me anything but more and more anguish. But in that moment this morning, God said, if your joy is simply in gathering, you will always be disappointed. Your joy must be found in me as you gather. And so whether it's your marriage that you've tried to place your joy in this year, whether it's your finances you've tried to place your joy in this year, whether it's in who you voted for or did not vote for this year, if you find your joy in Him, all these things have been a place of robbing us of our joy. If it's in the wrong things or the wrong people. And so I want to look at where do we place our joy But first, we must look at what joy does. Joy conquers all fears. Let's look at verses 8 and 10a. 8 through 10a. It says, in that same region, there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel of the Lord said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all The people. So who does the Lord appear to first? Shepherds. 
anybody that would have found joy in their circumstances, it could have been the shepherds. You see, the shepherds of that day, they made their living by watching other people's sheep. And so depending on how the sheep were doing, how their owners were doing, they would have found great joy. And so who does God go to first? He goes to the shepherd to remind the shepherds, don't put your joy in your job. And he says to the shepherds, there's news for you. Why would there be news for the shepherds first? Think of all the people that God could have chosen outside of who he already revealed himself to how come he chose the shepherds first? Now, when we see the shepherds, we see this manger scene. We see uh, the cute little boys with uh, the, the animals. It looks so cute. Shepherds in that day were this. They were the lowest on the totem pole outside of the lepers. They went lepers, then shepherds. So when you read through the text and you think of all those times that lepers are mentioned and what people did with the lepers, you can assure they did almost the same thing with the shepherds. They were uneducated men. They were unskilled men. They had no skills but to watch animals. They were dishonest men. They were unreliable men. They were untrustworthy and they were known to be thieves. They, they were so... Um, so disrespected in society that they could never go and give a witness in the court of law. That if a shepherd saw a crime happen, that the, the, the way the system was brought about, their word would not matter in the court of law. They could not enter the court of law to give testimony. That's how unreliable these men were. And so yet God, in his kindness, his goodness, shows up to those people first. How true is it that we are just like the shepherds? Are we not uneducated in the things of the Lord, unskilled, dishonest, unreliable, untrustworthy, thieves? But that is exactly who Christ came for. We are the shepherds. We are the shepherds. And the proclamation that's made to those shepherds that evening was this. They show up to who you and I would never show up to. And it says this in showing up. It says that the Lord and all of His glory shone round them. The glory of the Lord was seen by the shepherds. Remember every time that the glory of the Lord is present, what do people do? They fall out in fear. So here's these uneducated, unskilled, unreliable, untrustworthy men. But when they get into the presence of the Lord, they fall out on their face. And they are, what the text says, they are terrified. Because they know enough about themselves that they cannot be in the presence of God Almighty without having some level of fear. You see, my great fear is this for us as a church that we do not see ourselves like the shepherds and if God Almighty showed up we would not fall on our face because we do not have a proper understanding of who we really are apart from Christ Jesus we must must have a proper understanding of who God is 
There's four times in this story that this one phrase is used. Do not fear. You know, last week I talked about fearing the Lord. That, that's a place of reverence. That's a place of worship. And now we see here in the text, do not fear. And so I, I want to give a contrast of what these two words mean. It's important to know. Four times in the text. First time in the text is when the angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 verse 13. Remember the angel of the Lord showed up to, to Zechariah when Zechariah had gone into the Holy of Holies and he had a conversation with Zechariah about all that would happen. And Zechariah falls down and the angel says, fear not. Again, when Joseph and the Lord appears to him in a dream, what does the angel of the Lord say? Fear not. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And then again to Mary in Luke chapter 31. Four different times. And now here in this passage, Luke chapter 10 says, fear not. That word in your Bibles, highlight, circle. The word means this. Yes, it means reverence. But it means to have a grip of fear. It means phobia. It's where we get our, it's the word phobos. It's where we get the word phobia from. And so what the angel of the Lord is saying, hey, do not allow your fear to lead you to so much anxiety that you cannot trust and believe and follow the Lord. I believe if the Lord was here today, and he is, if he were to speak to us, he would say, fear not based on your circumstances. I'm not saying not to be wise, but I believe the Lord is saying to us, fear not. Don't allow our fear to direct us and grab us and hold us hostage to God and being obedient to what he has called us to. I wonder for me, I wonder for you, church, how often do, do my circumstances and my joy in my circumstances and when they come or don't come, lead me to fear that would lead me to a place of disobedience. Like if all of my joy is based on my circumstances and I place all of my joy, all of my hope, all of my promise in those things, when those don't come, I will be a very fearful person led and dictated by my circumstances. Not led and dictated by all that God has for us. So they tremble at the Lord. And then they say, this is where you can find your joy. So basically, they say, and this is my terms, not in the word, basically stand up, you do not need to fear. And this is the reason you aren't to fear. Because I have good news of great joy. What happens to you? What happens to me when we get good news of great joy? Do we not leap to our feet and shout and scream and go ballistic? Ladies, think of when you got engaged. I don't think it was a somber moment like, oh, this is cool. I don't think when you found out for the first time you were pregnant, it was just an ordinary day. There was something that happened in you. That brought you up off of your feet with just such joy. And that is what the angels are going to say to the shepherds. Hey, there's some news I have, so don't be afraid because I'm about to tell you this great news that's going to cause you to jump on your feet. 
And he says, this is where our joy must come from. Our joy must be in Christ. And look what the angels say in verse 10b. Fear not, for I, the angel of the Lord, bring you what? Good news. I bring you the gospel. It's what that, that's where we get our word, the gospel, from. The good news of Jesus Christ. And here's the good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So what is this great news that I should have great joy in? Where do we place our great joy in? Now the angels are going to tell us the same way they told the shepherds that faithful evening. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Three things we see in this one verse. Our joy must be in Christ. Well, who is Christ? Three things we see. The first is Christ is our Savior. I bring you great news of great joy that unto you is born this day, what? A Savior. That word Savior means Redeemer. That, sa that word Savior means Rescuer. That our Jesus came to rescue us. So we have great joy because we have a rescuer. Three things the Bible tells us Jesus did for us and how he rescued us. Those three things are first our sin. He rescued us from our sin. Our sin is the very thing that separates us from a holy God. And it says this, that Jesus came to bring us back or to redeem us or to rescue us from our sin. The next thing that the scriptures tell us over and over again, not only did, did Christ come to rescue us from our sin, he also came us to rescue us from what? The power of Satan. When you become a believer, because of Christ Jesus, the power of Satan no longer has dominion over your life. So you've been bought with a price, you've been redeemed, you've been rescued from your sin, and you've now been rescued from the power of Satan, from Satan, which means I don't have to keep going into sin because the power of Satan no longer has dominion and reign over me. So we believe that we have a Savior that's redeemed us and rescued us from that. I think the one that often gets lost, how Christ is our rescue, is the third thing. Yes, He came to rescue us from our sin. Yes, He came to rescue us from the power of Satan. But He also came up to rescue us from God's wrath. You see, without Christ re reconciling us to Himself, without Christ rescuing us to Himself, we are under great judgment from the wrath of God. So we can say it this way, Christ Himself has rescued us from God. Because God in His holy word says, the punishment for sin is death. The way to death through God is his eternal damnation on your life and on my life. Why? Because of sin. See, it's not just one thing that he would rescue us from sin. There had to be a payment that was placed so that, yes, those sins have been taken care of, but now all the other sins that I've ever committed are also taken care of. 
It's what the, uh, the, the, the Apostle John says. He is the propitiation for our sin. He's the payment for our sin, both past and present. And that payment is what rescues us from the wrath of God. We cannot simply be saved from our sin. We must be saved from the wrath of God. So we have our joy in Christ because He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. How is He our Redeemer? I'll give you several verses. If you want to find me after service, I'll give you these verses. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, and, uh, 20 says this, and 7, 23 says this, you were bought with a price. That's how we were rescued. He paid a price for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Ephesians 1, 7 says this about God and how he used Christ to reconcile us or to rescue us. It says in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to his riches and grace. 1 John 2, 2 says this, he is the propitiation for our sins. Not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Christ is our rescue. We can have joy in him because he came to rescue us. But he doesn't stop there. The angel doesn't stop there. Not only is Christ our rescuer, Christ is what? Our savior and he is our Christ. The word Christ there means restorer. It means the Messiah. It means the anointed one. So Christ, he came to redeem. He came to restore us. Have we placed our faith in our Messiah? chosen one, the anointed one, the set apart one. And the last one is this. Not only is he our restorer, our Messiah, but he is also what? Our Lord. The Lord means this, that he is sovereign over all things, that he is ruler over all things. In that passage, we see that Christ is equal to God himself ruler of all things. You see, when we come to this place this morning, and we come to a place that we've placed our joy in our Savior, we've placed our joy in Christ, we've placed our joy in the Lord, then our circumstances will not matter because we have an anchor that has rescued us, that restores us, and that will rule over us and for us. My great fear, though, is we've placed our joy in things that we think will save us. That we think will restore us. And we think will rule over us. You see, if that's your joy in your circumstances, in your stuff, you will always, always be disappointed. And so a way of application this morning is simply this. There is no way for you or I to have complete joy if we do not first come back to what he said is that we must have a proper understanding of who he is. You see, if we do not have a proper understanding of Christ, the incarnation, God himself, we will never find joy in this world. Yes, you'll find momentary pleasures or momentary happiness, but you will not find complete joy 
if you've ever been overseas, if you've ever been to the poorest of poor, and I had the opportunity to go to India to, to see and to speak with many, many believers. They're the most joyful Christians I've ever been around. Now their circumstances are despicable. They're horrible. But they have an understanding that what Christ said through the Apostle Paul, this world is not my home. The things of this world are not my home. I'm but a what? An alien. And so when we begin to see this is not our home, and that we have a home waiting for us, and a Christ that longs for us to be with him in glory forever, then we will put our hope, our faith in him. And we will come to this place that he is our joy. No matter what happens around me, my anchor is not in stuff. My anchor is in Christ, the Savior. Christ, the King, and Christ, the Lord. That is the greatest gift that's ever been given to us. But I ask this, how do we do this? We do this the same way that Christ himself did this. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight or hindrance or circumstance and sins which so clings to us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to who? Christ the founder and perfecter of our faith, who what? For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. What was it in Christ that could give him joy as he faced the cross? What gave Christ joy was knowing and just in a few moments when he would die, he would be reunited with his father in paradise. And so he set his joy on his relationship with God, not his relationship with the world. And so I would say to you, let us look to Christ who looked to God and his reuniting with him that gave him great joy and great pleasure. It's the easiest way to do this. His joy came through his obedience to God. May we find our joy and our obedience to God. And therefore, we would be men and women that would be led in worship to God because he is our Savior, he is our Christ, and he is our Lord. Let me pray for us this morning. God, may we find our joy through Christ Jesus. He is our joy. You tell us in Galatians that one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. The only way we'll have joy is through our surrender to you as our Savior. Because you are joy. And when we surrender to you, we find our joy in you and not the things around us. So lead us, God, these last few days before Christmas. May we find our hope in you. May we find our peace in you. May we find our love in you and may we find our joy in you. You've perfected all for us. We are so grateful 
Jesus, that you came as the incarnation, fully God and fully man, to make those things possible. Lead us, guide us, protect us. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Please rise for the benediction this morning. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is unexpressible and be filled with glory, grace and peace to you and Merry Christmas.